This is the EPLOG audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers from some of the top film festivals, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilogue Media, the podcasting network. So you can find us on their website, Epilogue Media slash The Artists. And of course, you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to GeoSavon to Google Podcasts. Everything is mentioned in the description. And of course, you can reach us uh, on the WhatsApp number and our email ID. I'm your host, Suchita, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you. How do we judge a work of art? For some, it might be brilliant. For others, it might be lame. What is visual experience and how is it different from perception? And how does perception and visual experience and consciousness and so many other things come together for us to interpret a work of art? How do we create a work of art? This and more on this podcast episode of The Artist with the amazing Robert Pepperell. Robert Pepperell is an artist. He investigates the nature of the conscious mind through painting and drawing, scientific experimentation and philosophical inquiry. He's a professor of fine art at Cardiff School of Art and Design. Many of Pepperell's paintings and drawings induce an indeterminate mental state in which what we see cannot be matched with what we know. Instead of recognizable objects, the viewer is presented with what the art historian does. Gamboni has called a potential image containing a multiplicity of possible meanings, none of which ever finally resolves. You can find him on robertpepperell.com. And I also ask about two of my favorite artists, which is Magritte and Da Vinci. So stay tuned and enjoy this episode. Hi, Robert. Welcome to our podcast, The Artist. And thank you for taking our time and joining in this amazing conversation with you. And I absolutely love the work that you're doing, Robert, and your investigations, you being an artist yourself. And it's very rare that I come across an artist who's also investigating into the art form. It's very much in the space of Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. I just love that space. And uh, so I'm so grateful that you are part of our podcast. Coming across your website where you have written that my research combines methods from art and science to investigate the nature of visual experience and how it can be represented. So when you, mm-hmm. Robert, when you talk about visual experience, 
how would you sort of how would you define a visual experience um yeah well, th- it's nice to be here so thanks for for the invitation um yeah it's 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 a com- i mean in some ways we know we all all of us who are lucky enough to be able to see uh know exactly what visual experience is without without mm-hmm. even thinking about it i mean it's just something that appears to happen automatically whenever we open our eyes and this kind of very rich three-dimensional colorful world <clears throat> appears before us uh so in some sense it's it's a very ordinary everyday experience for for most of us um and probably something that that a lot of us just take for granted you know, it's just there it just happens mm, yeah. um but certainly in my own case and from reading what other people have written about it not just contemporary people but you know going back hundreds if not thousands of years um it's a it's a very subtle and complex and actually quite puzzling in fact deeply puzzling um aspect of our of our general experience the fact you know that that this world appears to us in this particular way um it 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 took me a long time to understand that nobody really understands how it, how it happens <laughs> i just assumed mm-hmm. you know naively that it's kind it could all be explained by by patterns of light and you know nerves firing and um things happening in your brain but in fact you know it's a deeply mysterious phenomenon no one knows how we see really um mm. a lot of the mechanisms are kind of understood in parts but how this stuff just appears in front of us is deeply deeply mysterious so um yeah i i i find the whole problem fascinating i guess the simple definition is it's just what appears in front of us when we open our eyes but yeah there's a lot lot more to it than that um and it gets more the more you dig into it the more mysterious and, and complex it seems to become mm. robert this is this is so fascinating no one knows how we see we are still trying to sort of sort of understand and so, but do you see that when you talk about visual experience uh, do you see that it's different when we see a still image photograph or a painting versus a video or a movie yeah i mean in one sense there's an there's an obvious difference in that mm. one thing is still and one thing is moving but again when you when you dig into it more deeply you you realize that actually it's a more subtle and and complex relationship than that so um yeah i mean it, it always surprises me whenever i think about it even though it's a straightforward fact in many ways that when you watch a movie yeah even an old fashioned movie with a with a film and projector or a, a video you know on on a tv or or even today with a digital device mm-hmm. you, you never actually see anything move on the screen it, it's an astonishing thing mm-hmm. you know nothing actually moves what what you're seeing is a sequence of stills um when you watch yes. a movie you know and mm-hmm. every of the every one of those stills is absolutely still um but you run them we're one after the other at a certain speed and they appear to move things appear to move in in front of you of course they're not it's it's totally illusory in that sense at the same time you know when you look at a still image when you look at a painting or a photograph again nothing is really still um you know your eyes are always moving um you're always looking at different parts of the image your head is always moving really it's very hard to keep your head completely still and so there's a dynamic relationship even in a still image between yourself as the viewer and whatever you're looking at 
So yeah, there's a, there's a subtle kind of a gradient, I guess, between you know what what appears to be still and what appears to be moving. Um, it, it's more about actually in perception. It's more about interpretation than what you're actually seeing. So yeah, it, it's something that vision scientists have kind of well, scientists, perception scientists in general have come to understand is that we we don't look at the world as a camera would look at the world. You know, we're not just a kind of passive receptor that's stuck stuck in front of the world and just just receives information uh, passively. We're always uh, actively exploring the world and trying to interpret what we see in a way that makes sense for us. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, if if something's moving, um, but it's moving very very slowly, like the sun the sun moving through the sky or the the hand of a clock changing, it's still moving, but we won't perceive that motion because it's not our visual system doesn't think it's relevant to us to see it because it's not moving fast enough to yeah to, to be of interest to us likewise if something's moving too fast we won't see it because our visual system you know is just not capable of processing in that way so motion and stillness are really functions of how we interpret what we're looking at as much as what we're actually seeing out there in, in the first place so again it's another complexity that, that makes the whole process of seeing you know even more interesting and, and mysterious right i have a lot of questions on perception but before that i just want to sort of when you talk about interpretation when you're talking about this word so you're saying that our visual experience varies with culture with our habits with where we are living with our economic status Yes, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that um, you, you know, what you experience visually or what, what you're aware of when you look at the world is affected mm. by all kinds of factors, cultural, historical, what you expect to see, it can determine what you see. Um, I was involved in a study a few years ago where um, we, you know, people were using eye tracking um, and it's been shown before, but it, they, you know, they showed very clearly that if you're looking at an image and searching for something in the image your eyes move in a very different way than if you're trying to categorize what's what the objects are in the image so like a search task versus a categorization task will actually cause your eyes to move in a different way around <laughs> around the around the scene and so mm -hmm. you know our our even things like our height you know children look see the world from a different perspective than adults because of the height difference so yeah, again, vision and perception are very kind of variable, context-dependent processes, um, and what you see, in you know, in large part, depends on what you're expecting to see or what your cultural, historical, or mm. biological um, background um, uh, how how that affects what you're what you're looking at. And um, so, right. you know, animals see the world: horses, bees, <laughs> uh, mm. cats see the world. But they see a very different world to the one that that we see. Uh, they still have visual experience of some kind, but not the same that we have. So yeah, vision's a very variable um, process. It, it's not a uh, yeah again, it's not a one camera uh, model uh, that fits all situations. Right. So of course, if I say that, suppose your work as an artist will be interpreted very differently in, for example, in an African country than an Indian country than in your own country. I, I would have expected so. Yeah, I mean, I've never never tried mm -hmm. to, to do it to see. But yeah, I mean, there are certainly 
um, there's certainly you know, big cultural differences. Perhaps, you know, perhaps they are starting to become less so as you know mm. uh, through global media. You know, people are just being exposed to to very similar visual content in a way that perhaps historically, you know, different cultures around the world weren't. Um, but yeah, I, I still think those cultural differences probably would play a role. Um, and even you know, even within countries and within different populations in, in the same country, yeah, you would expect to see quite radical differences in the way people interpret uh, works of art. I'm, I'm doing a study with some other colleagues at the moment where you know, we found that you, you show some paintings to to a population of people and they almost divide in half you know half of them like it and half of them don't <laughs> yes <laughs> um now yeah that they, they look they're all looking exactly the same picture they're all you know pretty much from the same background and culture pretty much the same mm -hmm. age actually but wow. even there you're getting a, mm. a very big difference um mm. and it's you know how do you explain that it's quite quite interesting yeah yeah, exactly. So, so, so since you're investigating into it, tell me, uh, Robert, do you feel that, you know, uh, in today's times, I don't know if it's today's times or is it, is it like forever that, you know, you cannot, it, it's very, it's very difficult nowadays to, to say a work is a brilliant work because it's, it can be sort of have a varied opinion about it because of, because of this very reason. I think well, I think that's always been the case, yeah. So looking mm -hmm. for some kind of universal aesthetic rule, you know, that something that's beautiful in all all situations at all times for all people um, is probably uh, I can't think of an example where that you know, where that would be the case. Um, I think you know we just you just have to look at the history of art over over human development to see how many different ways people have you know. Manipulated materials to make to make objects, uh, decorative patterns, and so on. The variety is astonishing, you know. And, and it, basically, no two cultures ever come up with the same the same kind of aesthetic um, uh, preferences. So, yeah, just looking at the history of art and looking at how it's different across the world, it's very clear that there isn't really one again one kind of aesthetic standard that everybody in the world always conforms to. Um, it seems to vary greatly. Having said that, there do seem to be some things that are kind of similar. So you know, people look at, for example, complexity, you know, complexity seems to be something, if an object or an image is more complex, um, then we tend to think it's more interesting, at least. Um, often we think it's more, you know, more attractive. Um, if it's too complex, then people tend to dislike it and find it unappealing. So there may be underlying mechanisms. Um, again, I'm involved in another study where we're looking at curvature, um, and it's been found that people tend to prefer objects that are curved almost wherever they are in the world, you know, versus objects that are straight or sharp. And the same effect has even been found in some uh, some great apes. You know, so I think I think it was done in gorillas. Um, and so, yeah, th this I think from memory it may have even been found in dolphins i'm not sure um mm. but this this preference for curvature as, as it's called does seem to be a kind of consistent preference that occurs you know in in large parts of the of the animal kingdom um whether that explains why we find some things more beautiful than, than others i don't i don't know but yeah it, it may suggest there are some underlying mechanisms that that are common to all yeah you know, to, to all perceivers of, of works of art 
Mm, that, that's very interesting. Robert, before I sort of ask you uh, a bit more in detail about what perception actually means, just continuing with the visual experience, do you see a difference between visual experience and perception? Or you say that visual experience comes from perception? Um, I, I personally think they are broadly I mean, you can distinguish between them, I think. I, mm. I, certain experimentalists and, and vision researchers would distinguish between them. Um, so one example might, yeah, you, you can think of experience as kind of what what you're aware of or what's going through your mind at any one moment. Um, but you can be perceiving things without necessarily experiencing them. For example, mm. if you're driving, you know, you might be experiencing some music <laughs> that you're listening to in your on, in your car uh, you will be perceiving things on the road like signs and so on but you won't necess necessarily be experiencing them directly because your your attention or your mind is elsewhere so i think you can yeah you can draw a distinction between experience and perception but i think at the same time they are very deeply interrelated as well or integrated um, and and most often when you perceive something, it's because you're experiencing it. And um, if you can report that you're perceiving it, then you're almost certainly perceiving it. So from for my purposes, they're broadly similar functions, I would say. Wow. wow. Robert, I loved your uh, article on art sciences and paradox of perception, you know, something that I've been sort of talking to a lot of people trying to get a uh, a dig into it. So you've brilliantly questioned that perception is utterly baffling and we can precisely describe the biological structure of eyes and brains and we can measure the electrochemical impulses and electrical fields generated by neurons. What has been your investigation into perception so far? Um, I think it probably it's it could three areas really have interested me in, in, in perception. One is how it relates to art, you know, so mm. the, the things you just described, really. Um, the second is um, what's going on scientifically or biologically uh, when we see or when we perceive anything, not just when we see, when we feel, smell and so on. Um, and then I suppose lastly is the the bigger, deeper philosophical questions that those that come up when you think about things like this, um, things like, how do we yeah what's our relationship between between the the brain and the and the body and the world yeah that's a deeply um mysterious question too and one that people have been uh, thinking about for for centuries over over many different cultures um so perception sort of seems to lie at the heart of all those all those problems really you know the fact that we we do perceive the world and we have this experience is something that clearly links us links us to the world you know we're perceiving something out there and around us um, but you can also show um, that what we perceive is happening inside of us it's happening in in our brains largely um, many people argue and so immediately you're you're in a <laughs> in a paradoxical situation so I, I think I mentioned in that in that article that mm. um, you know something's going on inside you that appears to be going on outside you <laughs> mm. um, and it, it yeah it doesn't necessarily shed any light on on the relationship between the um or it doesn't solve the question of how we relate to the world 
Um, but it certainly uh, um, you know, makes it more interesting, if nothing else. And I think for me, uh, we, 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 this, this is the central problem of, of what it is to be human in, in many ways. You know, it's what, what are we and, and how are we defined by our relationship to, to what's around us? So I find art and thinking about art and perception and, and biology of perception uh, really useful ways of kind of grounding this much larger philosophical question about you know, how do we relate to the world and to each other actually as well, because you know, we all inhabit the same world, obviously. I don't know, everything appears so, so vague, you know, I feel that, you know, you're there and you're there not, you know, everything is so intangible. I don't even know if I exist, you know, <laughs> 99 yeah. empty space, you know, so I don't know, yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, yeah, I mean, again, it's one of these things that the more, the more you know, the more you, you realise you don't know in some ways, you know, or the more baffling, mysterious everything becomes. Um and probably, you know, I, maybe we'll never get to the bottom of this. Maybe we'll never, we'll never work out what's going on. Um, but I, I'm, you know, we're certainly making progress. I mean, even in the last twenty to thirty years, the the progress that's been made in in understanding, you know, cognition and perception and how the brain works and so on has been has been ex extraordinary. So I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm very hopeful that we're getting closer to an answer, even if we're not, you know, close, very close to it yet. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think the one of the things I'm always very um, passionate about saying is that uh, art can make a contribution to these to these debates. So generally speaking, questions about perception and even consciousness and being and so on tend to be dealt with within philosophy and science largely. And, you know, that's kind of the door closes then. The, the, these these are the people who are working on the problem and are going to come up with the answer. Uh, but I feel very strongly that you know, that other other thinkers, other creative people, and so on, can can also uh, make a really useful contribution. Um, and and art is one of those those areas. If no for no other reason, the artists have studied perception probably for longer than anybody else, because <laughs> <laughs> artists have always been, you know, really fascinated by how we see and how you represent what we see which to go back to what you said at the beginning so in some ways artists i always think were the first vision scientists they were the first people who really kind of tried to break down vision into its components and understand what was going on in a methodical way and you can see the evidence of that in in the history of art you've written this amazing article on consciousness and i you know i'm going to be coming to that because again consciousness is something we're still trying to sort of figure out you know a lot of theories coming out of it but before that, you know, you you, I'm a big Magritte fan, and I, it appears you are a big fan too. So when it comes to an artist like Magritte, for example, the, the treachery of images that you have mentioned in one of your articles, would you like to would you like to give your perspective on the treachery of images by Magritte? Yeah, of course. Well, um, in fact, going back to what I was just saying there, really, Magritte is a painter who you could almost think of as a kind of philosopher as much as an artist you know he's mm. <laughs> many of his works are well they're informed by philosophy obviously but they also pose um very important and difficult philosophical questions really so the treachery of images is a painting i'm sure most of your listeners will, will yes. know will have seen um mm. the, the one of the pipe which says underneath it this is not a pipe and 
on a very superficial reading, it just looks like a kind of art joke. You know, it's one of those things that people think conceptual artists do to uh, to annoy uh, uh, people <laughs> in museums. Um, but actually, you know, it, it's, it's well, whole books have been written about the painting. It's it's a very provocative um, uh, piece of piece of art. And yeah, I, I'm not going to add much to the to the huge literature on it already. But I think one of the things it exemplifies for me or shows up very clearly is something that actually lies at the root of all all images, you know, all pictures at least. Um, that that is sort of almost magical aspect that pictures have that we're not really aware of until you until you think about it, which is that uh, if you look at a picture of anything, I don't know, take a picture of a, a cat on your mm. computer screen, um, you, you, yeah, you, you see the cat, uh, you ask people what that's a picture of, they'll say it's a cat. Um, the, you have no hesitation in, in recognising a cat. But of course, there's no cat in front of you at all. <laughs> what there is, is a computer screen with some light, you know, patches of light uh, arranged in a certain way that when they go into your eyes, it, you, know, it, 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 you, you think you're seeing a cat. Uh, and all pictures are like this. So all pictures that represent things have this dual aspect. I call it a dichotomy, where on the one hand, you see what they're supposed to be, whatever it is they represent. But at the same time, you also see the kind of material or stuff from which the picture is made. And it's an amazing thing that you don't confuse those two things. You know, you don't you don't really think it's a cat, but you don't just think it's a load of bits of light on a screen. You know, we have this incredible capacity to see kind of two things at once. And I think Magritte's painting really shows that up vividly. You know, it's, yes, it's a pipe, of course, it's a pipe. Anyone who you, you showed it to would tell you that's the case, but you can also demonstrate that it isn't. And so there's a, there's a deep truth in the painting, even though it might seem kind of trivial and frivolous in the way it's expressed. There's a deep truth in the painting, not just about how all images work or all pictures work generally, but about how we perceive the world, you know, how we, going back to some of the paradoxes we talked about before, how things can both be and not be at the same time in this very strange, contradictory way. Um, so I think it's an absolutely brilliant, uh, brilliant painting, in, in if, if only for that reason. Mm. Sure. You've written uh, quite a bit on linear perspective. So I'm just sort of coming to that where you have written that for hundreds of years, our culture has relied on the principles of linear perspective to represent the visual world. And this has underpinned our general approach to image making and image technology. However, linear perspective fails to capture key aspects of visual experience. How would you define linear perspective for, for, for the listeners? And second, are you saying that our entire perception has been linear? Yeah, I mean, defining linear perspective, um, I mean, w w anyone who's taken um, a camera, uh, sorry, a photograph mm. with a camera, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I guess is a lot of people these days, um, mm. or looked at a, a photograph taken with a camera, that's what linear perspective is. Basically, linear perspective is a, a way of making images that uses the, 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 the straight or linear path of light, um, passed through a lens of some kind, and then projected onto a flat plane to make an image. Um, and that's how- by, by, by flat plane, you mean 2D plane? Yes, sorry, yes, a 2D right. plane. So 
in in the very very early days um in fact going back to the ancient egyptians you know if you pass light rays through a very small hole in a dark room you'll get onto a flat wall you'll get an image on the wall behind you um called a camera obscura and and that's basically what cameras are it, this, the, even modern cameras are basically using that same principle they're just collecting that light electronically and storing it so that principle of passing straight light paths through little holes onto flat planes or, or, or surfaces um, was central to to the form of um, perspective that was generated uh, that evolved in um, in the Renaissance in Italy. It didn't evolve anywhere else in the world, interestingly. Um, so other cultures around the world didn't use linear perspective until relatively recently. Um, it was it was discovered or invented in in Italy in the uh, in, in during the Renaissance um, and it was invented by artists and mathematicians um, as a way of trying to organize visual space so that it looked more authentic or real or consistent and to some extent it does do that you know so when we take photographs with our cameras um, they kind of look real you know it kind of looks like what we what we see in front of us um, the problem is um, and this is what the work that you're you're um, referring to um, that we've done in, in our lab tries to deal with is that when you compare that to what a real human actually sees, there's a vast, vast difference. Um, so most cameras have one lens and they have a flat plane at the back or flat surface that they project the light onto. But humans have generally have two eyes <laughs> um, <laughs> and the back of those eyes is curved are curved. Um, and then there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in our visual systems that has nothing to do with uh, the projection of light. It's, it's to do with processing, you know, forms and, and colours and shapes and so on. Um, and so a lot of the work we've done is looking at the difference between what a camera records when we see the world, a, a linear perspective machine, as it were, and what human beings mm. perceive when they look at the world. And again, the more you look into this, the more you realize that they're very, very different. And that photographs, whilst we talk about photographic realism, photographs aren't actually very real at all when you compare them to the rich visual experience, three-dimensional experience that we talk about at the very beginning that we have when we when we open our eyes. So my interest is really is in is in that contrast between the kind of mathematical generation of images through linear perspective tools um, and how you can how artists actually subsequently record the world which is it, it, in fact artists hardly ever use linear perspective it's a funny fact about mm, <laughs> about wow. it you know? um, certainly artists in India and China and so on didn't use it um, for a very long time and even artists in in Europe and, and America and in that tradition um, even though they were taught it until quite recently, I mean, artists were taught linear perspective rules until the 1950s or 60s in, in the UK, but hardly any art, hardly any artist ever actually apply it in practice because it doesn't really give you a very good sense of a three-dimensional world. There's actually other things you can do that are more effective. Um, so linear perspective is, it's great, it's elegant, it's you know mathematically very pure, but it's mm. not actually a good way of recording uh, human visual experience. How should we sort of then uh, record the perspective? What's the opposite of linear perspective uh, or a more, uh, you know, advanced form 
of recording. Yeah, well, that's actually something we're working on at the moment um, with mm. our colleagues. So um, we have this um, this this concept of natural perspective, which actually comes from Leonardo da Vinci. So Leonardo mm. da Vinci um, proposed this term um, many, many years ago now, centuries ago. Um, and he contrasted artificialist perspective, he called it, with, with natural perspective. So artificialist perspective, perspective is kind of mathematically produced, but like linear perspective I was just talking about there. It's, it's done with geometrical rules, whereas natural perspective is how we actually see how humans perceive the world, as I just described. And what we're doing in our in our lab and uh, um, with our research team is actually trying to reprogram 3D graphics engines, so 3D computers, um, so that they don't use linear perspective anymore, which is mm -hmm. currently what they use, mm -hmm. um, but a different form of perspective based on um, measurements of how humans actually see. And this is what we call natural perspective. Um, so what we did is um, I made a lot of drawings because I'm an artist myself and mm. I try to draw the world in the way I see it. Um, which is actually surprisingly different from the way you think you see it <laughs> when you study it very closely. Um, and then we we take measurements from those paintings and drawings of, what, of, 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 of my viewpoint, as it were. And then my colleagues try to mathematically convert that into um, computer code that then regenerates the image on the on the computer screen in a way that's much closer to the way that I would perceive it or record it in a painting. So in a way, we're almost trying to train computers to uh, to draw the world more like artists do than more than cameras would. Uh, and it's bringing that human uh, artistic perceptual element in to the image making process. And we've shown that it works. You know, it, it, you do actually get images that are more uh, more immersive, they're, they're, they feel deeper, things feel more 3D. Um, mm -hmm. You get more space, um, so it's a more natural way of of um, of describing the visual world in, in, in an image, I guess. Um, and we're trying at the moment to, in fact, we've got um, people like architectural visualization artists who are using this to to make better views of buildings, um, mm -hmm. for example, or uh, interiors of cars is, a, is is a useful one. You know, showing how a car looks inside in a more natural way. Um, so we think there's there's real benefits to uh, making images more kind of human centered, more more like the way that we'd be used to seeing the world. And it's quite surprising when you see these images, um, you suddenly realize that the linear perspective ones that we've been using all along start to look a bit odd. <laughs> they start mm. to look a bit wrong because mm. you, know, you you start to see there's a different way of doing it. So, um, so it's, yeah, it's a very interesting area of research based on art history and on vision science and on computer science, um, trying to basically solve the same problem that people like Leonardo da Vinci were trying to solve uh, and other artists in the Renaissance, but obviously with all the new tools and equipment that we, we now have. Mm, sounds very interesting, Robert, but would you sort of apply this to, because you're talking about camera versus the human eye and the way a camera sees versus the human eye sees. Would you, would you say that this, this, is, this is applicable to a, like a video or a movie? Absolutely, yes, yes. So again, you know, the movies we see today are all shot with cameras or created with computer graphics engines, a lot of them now, mm. Um, mm. which use linear perspective um, 
under under the engine as it were under, under the under the bonnet um mm. but yeah certainly the technology we're developing would allow people to shoot movies or generate movies in a way that was much closer to to the the way humans see the world um i'll, I'll give you one example which is that you know we see our own bodies a lot you know if you think about your daily visual experience mm. uh, as you look around the world if you're working on your computer example you see your hands on the keyboard but most people don't notice that they're seeing their hands or their legs or their or their torso but it's a really important part of your visual experience and actually it's what links you to the world so it's the it's the point of connection between your experience and the and the physical world around you um, most images don't don't include the body you know so you don't see when when a camera's roaming around a, a scene in a movie you don't see the arms or legs of the camera operator. You know, that would be mm -hmm. seen as a big error. <laughs> they would probably lose their job if they if they got their own hand in front of the lens. But in human vision, you know, we see our own hands all the time. And that's what makes our, our own perception of the world feel embodied and, you know, and natural. And so one of the things we're trying to do is 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 to help to bring the body back into the image to make it feel more like you're seeing it from a first person point of view. There's been attempts to do this in the past in the cinema industry. There's some quite famous movies where they've shot the, you know, the camera's been shot from a, a first person point of view, but it's actually quite difficult to get it looking in like the way that we see it um, because we don't, we're not cameras basically. So that's one example of where you can make images feel more natural and more immersive by bringing the body back in, in the way that we are used to from our own visual experience. Right. Your painting, Robert, The Orange Problem, it's it's beautifully done. And you've written that, where's the orange and how does our nervous system interpret it? So would you sort of like to elaborate in terms of the interpretation of the nervous system when it's looking at something like your painting and you're saying that there's no orange in it? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, thank, yeah, yes. Well, again, it's one of these very puzzling um, paradoxical questions that... Um, that yeah, I like to think about and other people seem fascinated by too. So the, the painting is, is basically a, a, an orange disc um, with the words, the orange problem written in the middle. And mm. I actually made it um, because I was I was thinking about this problem of how we see color. You know, it's, a, it's again, it's a very old problem. No one really knows how we see color. It's, it's a big mystery. Mm. And I made this as a almost like a kind of meditation aid, if you like. I just wanted to look at something and focus on it, um, a patch of colour, in order to really try and understand what am I looking at, what am I seeing when I see when I see colour. Um, so in a sense, you know, that that's why I made the painting, just to kind of pose the problem to myself in a very kind of concrete way. Um, but yeah, as you as you've just said, you know, when you look into what's going on when we see any colour um, in the world, it's mm. it's it's incredibly strange because. You know, we know from physics that there's no colour in, in, in nature, you know, leaves are not green and um, uh, apples are not red. Uh, there's no, you know, all that happens is that different objects, because of their physical makeup, reflect different frequencies of light back to, to our eyes. It's just, you know, it's all the same light, it's just, it's a slightly different frequency depending on what you're, what you're looking at. Um, so there's no colour in the world as such. And then, when you look in somebody's brain, you know, if you scan, scan a brain or cut a brain mm. open or stick electrical probes in, 
you you won't find any color in there either you know there's all, all you've got in a brain really is a lot of chemicals a lot of electromagnetic um, impulses and and, and um, waves moving around um, and nothing that looks anything like what we see in the world it exists in the brain in, in a form that we can observe so you know you're it, it's it's perfectly fair to say that there isn't really any orange anywhere it's not in the world it's not in our brain um so where is it and that's you know a really profound problem um and actually goes back to you know the whole question about our relationship to the world and the nature of consciousness and so on we we talked about earlier um mm -hmm. so really that yeah I, I i made the painting just to make that problem very very uh prominent and evident really um and maybe you know start to help uh, start to help me at least <laughs> move yeah. towards some kind of understanding of what's going on you know how how is it that we perceive color I, I think I've sort of got some ideas but they're pretty vague and you know uh, and still very very early days but you know we are probably closer to understanding it than we ever have been uh, but it, it remains a tantalizing a tantalizing problem mm. um, so yeah it, it's it's uh, again a, a situation where art can kind of draw our attention at least. If, even if it can't solve a problem, it can at least draw our attention to the problem in a, in a very vivid way and help us to think about it and help us to talk about it. Yeah, it's so magical and so mystical that, you know, there are actually no colours and what goes into our eyes and we don't know what's happening inside and why that colour is coming out. It's it's just so mystical and it's so mm. vague after a point. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> so yes. I don't know how are we going to sort of solve this or in this life or maybe next i don't, I don't know yeah don't know yeah your investigation robert into consciousness this is this is my favorite topics what has been your understanding of consciousness so far um well yeah but i've been interested in uh, in consciousness for for a very long time um mm. so I, I think i started publishing papers and back in the mid 1990s or at least I published wow. a book where I, I tried mm. to try to deal with some some of my my thoughts about it uh, and that was uh, in the mid 90s was the time when kind of computer technology was really starting to hit you know culture and science mm. and 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 even the world I, the kind of world of art that I was working at the time so computers before that tended to be quite you know obscure things that that lived in banks or whatever you never saw a computer really um and then throughout the 80s and 90s the computers were clearly becoming a kind of dominant force in our lives and of course that's continued greatly and they are so dominant now um but i started thinking around that time well i was thinking about creativity and consciousness and thinking what what would happen if, if a computer became conscious mm -hmm. you know, what what, what would what would that mean you know what would an artificially conscious being be like mm, mm. and this is partly driven by kind of science fiction thinking because there were science fiction writers thinking about things like that then yeah uh, I, i'm just going to quickly button here and say that this yeah. is a question that i asked uh to one of the persons i was having on the podcast uh, the he deals with ai and i said that what if you know the artificial the, the computers become conscious and he said that this is the only thing that will differentiate between a human and a machine that they can never be made yep. conscious. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I certainly didn't, I didn't have any ex clear expectation that machines would be. I, it was just a more mm -hmm. of a theoretical idea that, 
you know, um, could they? And, and yeah, there are other people who argue the opposite, of course. There are many people who argue that, yes, it's it's only a matter of time before before machines become conscious. So it's a very, yeah, it's a very controversial area, but it, that's really what got me into the whole question of, well, what what is consciousness anyway? And, you know, what 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 would it mean to, to to make a machine conscious? And and what is it does it mean for a human to be conscious? And that really got me thinking about the problem more generally. Reading, you know, what other people had said about it. People like John Searle at the time were writing important papers, um, and that's yeah. It's been a, it's been a kind of lifelong interest, really. And I've followed over the years the various debates and you know. Uh, the, the growth of neuroscience, the neuroscientific in, interest in conscious, which was pretty non-existent in the, um, the, uh, the neuroscience as such didn't didn't exist in the in the 90s in the, in the form it does now. But the consciousness was not studied anywhere near to the same extent scientifically that it, that it is today. And so, you know, there's been this huge growth in in scientific research in consciousness as well as philosophical and um, and other people, artists and, and so on, um, spiritual people, uh, you know, it, it's, mm. it's a topic that affects us all. Um, but my own, I guess my own little corner of the debate, really, or my own, my own view on it is that um, we need to, when we're thinking about consciousness or trying to explain it uh, scientifically, we need to take the idea of energy really seriously. Um, uh, and I'm talking about energy here in the kind of strict scientific sense, you know, as the as the the capacity to do work, which is how it's normally defined in in physics, for example. Um, but energy, you know, is this is this? I mean, it, again, energy is a mysterious mm. uh, phenomenon. No one, no one really. I've I've been trying for for years now to find out what energy is, and and, and I've, so far I haven't been able to find anyone who can tell me what it is. Uh, it's this mysterious. Uh, capacity that matter has in certain situations to move or to have the potential to move or move other things um, and it it seems to drive a lot of what what happens in nature in fact nothing moves in nature without energy being uh, involved in some way or other so my own interest is is really what's the role of energy in the brain and in generating consciousness and that's really you know, a topic that I find really fascinating there's a lot of uh, scientific and neuroscientific thinking on that there's also philosophical thinking to be done mm -hmm. uh, but I, I really don't think we can solve the problem of consciousness and, until we start to think seriously about energy and its role in in its in, in the generation but Robert there's so many things that goes into the interpretation of an art you being an artist yourself and you're putting your your work there as uh, you know, as someone who's creating and versus some uh, someone who's receiving your art, uh, someone who's making a film versus someone who's receiving that film. There's so many permutations and combinations that are going in between the creator and the receiver. How do you judge a work of art? Um, yeah, uh, do you mean me personally or do you mean how do people in general? Yeah, in general, like like in general, how do people judge? You know, uh, like something that's something that they're taking understanding versus something that's then they're not taking our understanding, mm. or something that we consider as you know the 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 best artwork. But whose perception is that? Yeah. Um, yeah, again, it's another incredibly complex and difficult question, and um, there are many people working on it and lots of different ideas. Um, 
I mean, the rule of thumb I always use, well, the one rule of thumb that I use to help, help, you know, I, I say this to people sometimes and they seem to to like it, is that if, if, a work of, if you see a work of art and it's something you'd like to have in your house <laughs> or to own or to be with in some way, that's a good sign. You know, I think art, artworks are, ideally artworks are things you live with, not just things you go and look at in, in museums. It, it, museums are a little bit like, putting zoo anim, animals in zoos in a way you know you you it, it's a spectator it's a spectating event whereas um art you know sh should ideally be something that you that you you have in your house or having you close to you and you it, because the great artworks that they, they don't give away their their meaning or their power very easily or very quickly you know one way to judge a good artwork is that the more you the more you give it the more it will give you back. It's, it's a reciprocal relationship. Um, you can't just expect it to um, to do all the work for you. So great artwork artworks repay long consideration, long contemplation, sometimes over years. You know, there are certain artworks that I've been looking at for years and I still find them mysterious and challenging and interesting. And I, I still find new things about them. And as, so for me, that's that's kind of the hallmark. A, a good work of art requires a lot of a lot of your input, a lot of your uh, cooperation, but in return it will reward you with with a lot of richness and 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 um, uh, and value of its own. And and it's like a almost like a friendship in a way, or a bond that you get with a work of art um, that can sometimes last over many many years. You are definitely sort of fascinated by Leonardo da Vinci. I am, I am, I'm totally in awe of him. He's still an enigma to me, how he sort of thought and how he functioned, his investigations. And I've not been able to finish the biography yet. It's, I bought it more than a year back. You know, I'm still, mm. you know, going through the pages. But just a couple of things about Leonardo da Vinci that sort of inspires you. Obviously, I know the, the paintings and some of the drawings that many, many people know, but it was only relatively recently I was reading his notebooks um, mm. and I was largely reading them to do to do research on linear perspective, actually, um, mm. that we were talking about before. But yes, yeah, I was really struck when reading his notebooks, um, how modern his his mind is, you know, his, it, the, the language is, is, is a little bit, you know, archaic and old fashioned, obviously, um, and maybe the translation sometimes doesn't help. But, you know, you when I read him, I, I just get this real sense of someone uh, you know, who's just trying to work out what's going on. You know, he sees this very rich, fascinating world around him. Uh, he has certain ways of investigating it with you know, drawing or making things or whatever. Um, and it's it just feels very contemporary when you read his writings, for me at least, that he's just and in many ways, some of the problems he's looking at haven't really been solved you know the, the the one we were talking about before about artificial and natural perspective that's that's still an ongoing debate an ongoing question um so what yeah what strikes me is how how modern and contemporary his his way of looking at the world is and how much i can relate to it from my own kind of much more <laughs> constrained attempts and less successful attempts to to make to make sense of it um so yeah that that was something that i never really got from just looking at the paintings or the drawings it's, it's actually his writing in a way or at least what he was writing about that i find really um you know most fascinating just the breadth of his mind and his in inquisitiveness and 
and and the way he was able to explain things, you know, very, very clearly. And I, I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I don't think these notes were ever written to be read by anybody. I think a lot of them were, you know, he wanted to keep them secret. Wow. <laughs> so it's even, um, I, that could be wrong, I don't know, but I, I know that some of them were written in a sort of code. So it's even more astonishing that he wrote all this stuff, all these amazing ideas, and he, he didn't, they're for his own benefit, really, not, not to be shared. Um, I've got a feeling he did write a book on perspective that got lost. I vaguely remember, um, but yeah, I think I think it, yeah, it's it's those who know him only from the drawings and paintings um, probably don't appreciate what yeah you know, what you were just saying really, which is what an extraordinary character and, and mind he had. Mm -hmm. And did you read that uh, that if you keep looking at his portrait for a long time, you will get supernatural powers? Have you heard of that? <laughs> I haven't. No, no. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, have you tried? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. so let's see if I get some supernatural powers. Robert, yeah. your paintings are so beautiful, you know. I mean, each one of them, I was I was so beautifully done, so intricate, so detailed, so beautiful. Where do you, Have you investigated yourself within your own self that where is this imagination coming from? Do you tap your subconscious do, it's, is it coming from some dreams that you're seeing um i've i have tried sometimes i've seen things in dreams um and then i've kind of woken up and tried to draw them you know make them I've, there's a few paintings i've got that are you know my attempts to try and draw what i saw i saw in my dream it's very difficult to do that i mean it's it feels so vivid and sharp and real when you're in the dream but then when you try and reconstruct it later it all seems to sort of become very vague and fall apart so it yeah it's not a, it's not a reliable method let's put it that way for for <laughs> making artworks um relying on dreams but yeah certainly the i i can un, i can see that there's a the unconscious or the subconscious is playing an enormous role in it yeah not just in in, in the work i make but in in art you know making artworks generally and i guess creativity um and and very often I find myself, you know, doing things without really thinking about them, not really paying attention to them, and then realizing afterwards, oh, that was, you know, that worked or that was good. And I know a lot of people say this, but it's often when you're not really thinking too hard about something that you kind of make the the breakthrough or things seem to come together in a in a in a clearer way. Um, so I'm 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 very um, yeah I'm very happy to let my unconscious mind, you know, have have an influence over what I'm doing. Um, however, again, it's not enough on its own to do that. You also need, you know, some executive control and you need to be able to, you know, get the paint onto the onto the canvas and all that. That's all kind of motor stuff. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is it's a combination of the two, that there's a there's a role for both what sometimes called top down or um, you know, executive functional control over what you're doing and also, you know, things that seep in from the from the outside and you're not necessarily aware of and you need to allow them to have the space to come through. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's probably a battle or a combination of the two um, that really, you know, produces the best work, I would I would guess. And, and the other thing is that I've also been really struck by over the years is that I'm just speaking for myself, but it may mm. be true of other artists, is that I'm not actually the best judge of my own work. You know, I, I 
I, I make a certain painting, let's say, and I want it to look a certain way. And I can kind of convince myself it looks that way because that's what I wanted to do. But when I show it to somebody else, I realise they're seeing something completely different <laughs> or <laughs> not completely different, but quite different from what I had intended. And sometimes that can be really disappointing. You know, you, you, you try and convince people to see what 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 you've attempted to do, but they're, they're just not seeing it. And And so it's very interesting how kind of fallible, in my case, at least, you know, my own perception can be of my own work. Um, and that's something I've had to learn to do with over over the years as well. Um, not, you know, not to trust my own judgment because sometimes other people's judgment is much, much more reliable than my own. Um, so I'm not quite sure how that relates to your question about the unconscious, but yeah, again, it, it just points to the fact how complicated and um, again, mysterious uh, a lot of these things are. Mm, right. Right, but that might not be a fallibility, but actually somebody else interpreting your work or your friends or your close ones could be possible because they have a different perception of things and the consciousness is playing a different kind of a role there. I don't know how much of their consciousness they are tapping. That's true, that's, that's a very good point and that could be true. But I think in the most disappointing cases, they... I had one example last night, actually. And I, I, re I really wanted the painting to be good, and I put a lot of work into it. And I, th I thought it ought to be good because I put so much work in. And I showed it to someone; they said it's not very good. <laughs> and actually, they, they were right. You know, I, I was just trying to delude myself. I was trying to convince myself it was good when I, my uncon unconsciously, I knew it wasn't. You know, I was, tr I was really trying to, you know, I was trying to convince myself. So, yeah, I agree with what you say, but also. Um, I, you, know, you also have to accept that sometimes other people's opinions can be actually better than yours, even if they because they're different. So um, it, it's a, it's a struggle when you work in the studio as an artist. I've heard other people say this: you're you're usually on your own, you know, in the studio. It's quite a solitary um, activity. But at the same time, you've got all these people, these kind of ghostly people around you, who are your kind of critics or audience, <laughs> who you're almost also kind of present in some way in your imagination at least and you know you kind of have them at the back of your mind as people are going to be critical or you know or like what you do um so yeah it's, it's a strange it's a strange uh, I, I would i'd slightly worry about myself if i was the only person who'd ever thought this but when i speak to other artists they they say very much the same thing I just want to sort of wrap this with one last question, Robert, for the artists who are listening to this podcast. Whose judgment should they trust? Their judgment or the critics' judgment or the audience judgment or the people around them, close to them? Oh, well, I suppose that's just about saying I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, um, yes, I, I think over time a consensus emerges, you know, the, the good art, what, what's good art, generally speaking, you know, over time gets tried and tested and trusted. It doesn't mean there aren't great artists out there who haven't been discovered or, you know, their work is not celebrated. You know, there's, for example, recently a lot of female artists have been, you know, brought to the fore whose work was um, has been neglected for, for decades or for centuries. So it's not, it's not an infallible process, but broadly, yeah, I think broadly speaking, you know, the, the stuff that's been around and has been treasured and valued over, over centuries or decades is worth paying attention to. Um, it's very hard to tell with contemporary art, you know, that process hasn't happened yet, so we don't know. But 
I think broadly, yeah, if something repays attention, um, if, if something kind of interests you and you look at it more and you get more back from it, then it's a valuable experience. You're having a valuable aesthetic experience and that's worth, you know, that, that's worth having. Um, I don't think any one person or any one group of people can claim that like critics or historians or whatever um, or even artists can claim to be, you know, the infallible source of, of truth about what is or what isn't, what isn't good art. I think it's a, it's a more social process that occurs over, over longer periods of time than that. Um, having said that, you know, there are certain people whose value, whose opinion I would judge more than others, and I'm sure that's true of all artists. Um, but again, the big lesson for me is not to rely on my own judgment too much. I think that maybe it's what I've learned. <laughs> And to, and to make sure right. you do get views of other people because yeah, otherwise you become a little bit insular, a little bit solipsistic about your own about your own work. Right, right, right. thoroughly enjoyed this episode so tell me as an artist listening to this podcast whose judgment do you rely on is it your own judgment is it your friends is it your near and dear ones people in your inner circle or is it uh, someone who's more accomplished than you by whose judgment do you judge your own artwork think about it as i think about it too and i'm retreating into the weekend with these amazing lines I found on social media. It's by someone called Amjad Abedi and it says this, empty your schedule indefinitely, silence your phone, live by the minute, by following your heart, unapologetically, spend time with yourself, observe your body, just be and rediscover your splendor. Take care guys and have a great weekend. I'll see you next week.